nostalgia is such a powerful thing. There are certain things in life that I can recall as if they were happening right now, right in front of me. Smells seem to especially send me back to a place in the past that holds a significant memory, whether that be a good memory or a bad memory. It's so apparent how much nostalgia means to people in today's media as well. Think of the millions of dollars that have been made from all of these shows that are coming out just completely ripping off the 80s and the 90s. You can't turn on the TV without nostalgia just hitting you right in the face. For me, a specific place of nostalgia is my hometown where I spent a great majority of my life. Many of you, like me, can think back to a small hometown feeling, and memories begin to well up, and it stirs an emotional response that is unique and it's very strong. For me, I think of the pizza place where we went to eat on Sunday afternoons with the old arcade games as a family. I remember the soccer field where I lost game after game after game in high school. I picture the wall above my parents' couch in their living room with all of the school pictures of my sister and I lining the wall. And I care for my hometown as I think of all the family moments that I shared there and my family shared there. And it matters to me how certain landmarks are maintained and whether or not they're removed, because I have a connection with them based on significant life experiences. If I really want to get myself into a nostalgic moment, I think back to walking into an amusement park in Cincinnati, Ohio, Kings Island, with my family. The music playing, the warm summer air, the smell of greasy, overpriced food, the smell of that coconut-scented sunscreen, and then chlorinated fountains being blown in the wind. And I can literally feel that moment as I describe it to you. Nostalgia is very, very powerful. Nostalgia is so powerful that the biblical author of Ecclesiastes gives us a warning and a caution about not placing too much value on our recollection of the good old days. However, there are elements of nostalgia that are valuable and they're necessary as a part of the human experience. Nostalgia can be a driving force for people to do things that are profoundly good in their own lives, in their families, and in their communities. And this is a common experience for all of us, regardless of our background. It's accessible to all of us. Now, I want you to take a moment and think back to your hometown, wherever it is. In your mind, paint a picture of those restaurants that you and your family would frequent. Consider how good or how mediocre the food really was. Imagine back to that backyard or that park where you and your friends would play as a kid. See those houses that you would pass every evening as you came home and turned into your neighborhood. Feel the air getting cooler as you go on a Friday night to a football game. By now, I hope you're probably back in a place that holds those powerful memories. Now imagine, you get a phone call from back home, and it's letting you know that all of those things have been completely destroyed. I'm not talking about run-down streets with some potholes and a couple businesses have closed. I'm talking about people from the outside have come in, they've burned down the neighborhoods, they've burned down the town hall, and they've burned down everything in between. 
The economy is gone. It's been wiped out completely. And every moment that you have, every memory that you have of that place has been completely wiped out. This shouldn't be a sterile and unemotional moment of loss. This isn't just the loss of a place. This is a personal loss for you. Because you hold such high regard and weight in your heart and in your memory for that place. For me, I remember one of the first times that I went back home after my sister and I had both moved out. We went inside, and shockingly, all of those pictures that hung on the wall behind our parents' couch in the living room were gone. They they hung there our entire childhood, and we get back, and they are gone. My parents had taken them down, I guess planning to put some other decoration up and replacing it. But my sister and I, we played it off with jokes, but this really bothered us, and we, uh, we were really not happy. And we pressured them until they restored it to the way that it once was. They're still there now. What would your reaction be to losing something that is so, so special? What would you do to help restore what was lost? And this is where our story begins today with Nehemiah. This is a continuation of that Ezra story that Pastor Harold's been giving us and we've been studying for the past few weeks. Ezra has done his part, and now Nehemiah is taking up his mantle and he's moving it on to the next step. An interesting part about this book is that it's written in his own voice and it's all from his own perspective. So Nehemiah, he is living in Persia and he's been away from home for many, many years. Although he was in Persia, His Jewish identity held a high place of importance in his life. Nehemiah loved his nation, and he was very, very proud of his Jewish culture. Even more importantly, he really loved the Lord. A common theme as we've studied through this Hall of Faith series is that God places people in high places with the driving motivation of his purpose and for the advancement of his work. Nehemiah is no exception to this theme. He's been placed by God in a position of significant power and influence with intention to advance the purposes and plans of God. Even though Nehemiah is going to be driven by his relationship with God, he is not a priest, he's not a prophet, he's not like the other characters that we've studied. Nehemiah is working a regular job in the government. He has a good paying position, but his work is in a secular field. Nehemiah is just a normal guy. Sometimes when we read the Bible and we see ourselves being so far removed from the time and the culture that we forget the magnitude that some of these empires had. Persia is one of them. This was a world superpower. Everything that happened on almost the entire planet went through the Persian king Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the most powerful man on the planet by far, and what he says goes. And Nehemiah finds himself working right beside him every single day. So, Nehemiah is making his living as the king's cupbearer. One day, his brother arrives to visit back from Jerusalem. And I want you to imagine the nostalgia again that comes up in conversation between these two brothers. Imagine what it's like when you get together with your brother or sister. They talk, through things how, they talk through how things have changed, and they reminisce about things that have stayed the same. And as they visit with each other, and while they're catching up, the question comes up, and Nehemiah asks his brother, how well is the family doing back home? How well are things going in the city? 
And here, I picture Nehemiah's brother tensing up. He knows that what he's about to tell to share with his brother is something that's really going to crush his spirit. The report that Nehemiah is about to receive seems to be unexpected to him and is obviously not at all what he was hoping to hear. So they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and they are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. Put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes here for a moment. Imagine how that visit with a loved one would quickly shift from such a great time of remembering the past to a mournful time of disappointment. Unexpectedly, there's no change to that terrible situation in Judah. Unexpectedly, the people are in turmoil and have almost no agreement on how to handle anything at all. Unexpectedly, the walls of the city, its first line of defense, are destroyed and burned to the ground. It's an understatement to say that he is absolutely devastated. Even worse yet, Nehemiah knows exactly what the source of this trouble really is. He knows that this destruction lines up exactly with the terms of the covenant made with God at Sinai had Israel chosen to break them, and they did. Deuteronomy 28.52 is that section where it says, They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. Nehemiah is painfully aware at the cause of the pain of this city. It's all due to their blatant disloyalty to Yahweh. He understood that God was just and righteous too in passing down this judgment to his covenant people who had once again broken the terms of the covenant they had made with God. Nehemiah seems to have been hoping for the best in the report, but the report he received, unfortunately, was exactly the opposite. So this news obviously hits Nehemiah like a ton of bricks, and like any of us would, he has a reaction. Verse 4 says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. It's important to notice that Nehemiah's immediate reaction comes in two specific ways and in two specific waves. In the first wave, he's completely overcome with emotion and takes time to acknowledge that emotional response. Nehemiah sat down and he cried. More specifically, he wept. He really felt this heartache and allowed his emotion to come out in a physical way. And this is a moment in the text where we could easily get lost and move on, but I want to dwell on this for just a second. We so often tend to try to bury our emotions deep down inside of ourselves and refuse to acknowledge that they're even there at all. So many of us have gone through loss and heartache and trauma in all different forms. And I know that there are a lot of us in the room that are even dealing with that season right now. Nehemiah was not wrong to be still and take that moment, have a seat, and cry. Nehemiah is not weak to react that way either. 
And maybe I'm preaching to myself even more than to you. But I know that I'm not alone in trying to ignore heartache. You are not weak. God allows you to feel these things for a reason. Take the time to cry. Take the time to mourn when you really need it. It is a healthy response that is designed by God specifically as an outlet of an emotion that would be too great for us to handle otherwise. It's really counterproductive for us to try and move on from devastation without acknowledging the pain that it created. Even more, it will cause more problems that will, that will and could be avoided if we had only taken that little moment to pause and grieve properly. So Nehemiah does something next that we should also really take to heart. His time of weeping prepared him for the next stage of his reaction. He does not let his pain and his grieving define him permanently, but rather he allows it to prepare him for the next step of his reaction. And in this second wave, Nehemiah shifts his pain to a point of productiveness that gains with his famous prayer. His prayer begins with, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions that you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them and bring them to a place I have chosen as your dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. Have you noticed how many people in our Old Testament study have just been absolutely terrible? I feel like a constant theme that we hear over and over is, now this is not a guy you want to model your life after. But one aspect of our Nehemiah story that really deviates from much of our other series is that he is far more relatable to us than many of the others that we have learned about together. Nehemiah can very easily reflect on your life. The way that he approaches and appeals to God in this prayer is beautiful and overlays so well with our own interactions with God. In fact, we can model Nehemiah's prayer for our own conversations with God. Use it as a fantastic outline for when your words seem to fall flat, or when you need guidance with a direction in prayer, or when you don't know what to say at all. Nehemiah opens his prayer in verse 5 by acknowledging God's goodness and love. And this is important, even though he's likely not really feeling it right now. He's practicing something that we all should be doing. He's resting in the fact that God is good regardless of the turmoil that ha is happening in his life, in his culture, and in his city. 
He acknowledges God's love regardless of the destructive judgment that God handed down for their sins. Even in that same vein, he speaks to the justice of God's judgment when he says in verse 5, God who keeps his covenant of love to those who love him and keep his commands. We sometimes open our prayers with a really low view of God, and we miss who he really is right there at the very beginning of our prayer. What I mean by that is we forget that God is truly good and he's truly loving regardless of our circumstances. We forget that he is in control and he is working for our good all of the time. Like, we know these things to be true, but we operate from a place of self-motivated control and anxiety as though it wasn't true. And here Nehemiah is deeply troubled, but he chooses to rest in God's love and goodness anyway. This mindset is one that each of us should make the choice to adopt each and every single day. Rest in God's goodness, even if you don't see it at the moment. Rest in God's love, even if you're not feeling it. You know that he loves you, if nothing else, by the sacrifice that he made for you in his son Jesus. Acknowledging God's goodness can be half the battle when it comes to how we react to trouble in our lives. Knowing who he is and saying it out loud really speaks volumes about whether or not we really believe that God is who he says he is. So firstly, he acknowledges God as good and loving. And next, Nehemiah moves on in verses 6 and 7 to a time of confession. 6 says, I confess the sins of, is, of we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah here is speaking on behalf of all of Israel. But something interesting about this is that he doesn't really have the authority like you'd expect him to be doing so. We really only see the prophets in the Old Testament speaking on behalf of God's people to God and vice versa. Nehemiah, though, like we said, is not a prophet. Nehemiah is just a regular guy. Nehemiah works a regular job and lives a regular life. There's nothing really that makes him special in terms of a theological office. However, he confesses the sins of the Israelites at large. And this is such a significant statement to be making. He wants God to know that at least one of his people is still on his team and he sees the errors that have been made. It's not too dissimilar to you praying for your nation or for your culture. Nehemiah is practicing corporate repentance here in this prayer. And that's something we see all throughout the Old Testament. When was the last time that you took a moment to pray for forgiveness of others? I know that the thought really crosses my mind. I have enough baggage on my own and enough stuff on my own that I need forgiveness for. And I find that most of my prayers are focused on that forgiveness for me. But why not ask forgiveness for everybody in this room? What is the harm in letting God know that he has kingdom people working to reform and challenge and encourage and better all of the people that are around them? It's not just limited to this room either. Pray for the forgiveness of your coworkers and for your classmates. 
Pray for the forgiveness of that one person that you don't like or that one person on 35 who just cut you off. What did Jesus tell us to do? In Matthew 5.44 he said, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We need to find ourselves falling more and more into a rhythm of prayerfulness for others. We aren't the, other, the only ones who are so worthy and holy to deserve God's access. We're called to lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yes, even our enemies. Why would we want anything but God's best for the people in our lives? What about praying for forgiveness for our culture? that so many of us try to just ignore and pretend it's not there. These are hurting people that are all around us every day who desperately need forgiveness of their sin. Do we care enough to ask for them? Now we have to acknowledge the truth that we can't obtain forgiveness for others, but we can still pray for their hearts that God would help them to turn and repent. This is what Nehemiah was doing. He wanted the nation of Israel to repent from their sins and turn back to the God with whom they had made the covenant in the first place. And Nehemiah does not stop at confessing the sin of his people, though. He goes smaller, and he confesses the sins of his family, and then ultimately his own sin. He acknowledges that he has a personal role to play in this destruction and in this chaos that are absolutely annihilating his city and his culture right now. Perhaps it's just a complacent attitude where he expected everyone else to go ahead and just fix things up while he looked on from afar from his comfortable government job. But Nehemiah begins a trend of self-awareness that's going to continue on throughout the rest of his story. Nehemiah takes full responsibility for his part in the destruction of the city and the disunity of his culture. He, too, needs forgiveness for his role. His family needs forgiveness for their shortcomings in following the Lord as members of his covenant people. He is not immune from this brokenness. As we pray, we ought to have the same attitude of responsibility and ownership. Regardless of how active of a role we may or may not play, we still fall short, and we are in desperate need of God's grace. We are not outside of a broken culture. It seeps in, and it can lead us adrift in our own homes and in our own lives. It's really easy to look at the world around us and point the finger of self-righteous judgment. We can see the sin of other people and far more quickly and readily than we can see our own. However, we are broken people too. If not for the grace found in Jesus, we would be in the same boat as the world around us. We still sin. We are still complacent. We are still unfaithful. And we still desperately need God's mercy and forgiveness. So ask for it. We should be helping each other with this step too. This is not something we should be doing alone. Help each other to seek forgiveness when we are wrong. Have a trusted group of people in your life who will let you know when you are out of bounds and are willing to walk with you as you get back to where you should be. Galatians 6.2 tells us that we should carry each other's burdens. 
God designed a system in his kingdom that is set up to fully succeed in the repentance of our sins. And we are not alone in that struggle. Acknowledge your role in the brokenness. And God is faithful and he's just to forgive you. In this next section of his prayer, Nehemiah acknowledges God's right to leave Israel in turmoil if they chose not to follow him. He immediately reminds God of his promise to return Israel, though, to their place if they were willing to obey his commands. God would return them to a place of prominence if only they were willing to be obedient. And this is all great, but it leaves us here in a little bit of a moment of tension. Israel's not going to turn back to God on their own. We've seen that. If they were going to follow him again, they would have done it years and years ago. They've had every opportunity to do it. And they've had every opportunity to lean into God as their leader, but they have chosen to do just about anything and everything but that. Israel is going to need someone to step into that leadership role and lead them back to the Lord. And now if this were us, we'd probably start looking around the room and looking for the pastor in the room. They're the ones who have the knowledge and the influence on how to lead people to Christ, right? But this is not the approach that Nehemiah took at all. He has a plan before he even begins to pray, and he knows that he's going to need the help of the Lord in order to achieve it. Nehemiah is aware that he holds a position of favor. Nehemiah feels that nostalgia for his people and for the way things used to be or should be in his culture. And he was planning on doing something about it himself. No more waiting, no more complacent expectation for someone else to pick up the responsibility. So Nehemiah asks God in verse 11, Lord, let your ears be attentive to the prayer of your servant, that's him, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. That servant who needs the Lord's attention, like I said, is him. The servant who needs favor in the presence of the king is going to be him. Nehemiah is going to be the one who leads Israel out of this mess to rebuild Jerusalem. His tears and his mourning, they were not empty. He is going to take some action. Our tendency, especially in the church it seems to me, is to expect everyone else to do something about every issue that we see. Nehemiah, though, is saying the buck stops here. He is making the necessary plans to take personal responsibility for a necessary change. And it isn't uncommon for us to allow issues to fester and to grow beyond a point of control. We see an issue and we quickly deflect responsibility to someone else for the solution of that issue. For example, I, I know there's a conflict between me and this other person, but I'm going to wait for them to come to me before we choose to resolve it. I know there's this area of ministry that is in desperate need, but I'm going to let someone else with more time take care of it. I know that this, whatever circumstance, needs a solution, but I'm going to let anyone other than me deal with finding that solution. And what has happened here is that we've become excellent inspectors, but inferior repairmen. We can tell you all the problems, 
we can quickly point out all the flaws and all the cracks and all the people that are necessary to get the situation under control. But we're not going to be the ones to repair it ourselves. We're just the inspectors who critically spew judgment until someone else decides to take responsibility. Not only is that not the role that God has assigned you to, it's also neglectful of the abilities that he's gifted you. You are called to be a part of the solution. You are a, you're not called to be a perpetual spotlight for a problem. And Nehemiah saw this role, and he took this role very seriously. He saw a problem, and he quickly identified how he could be held responsible to make sure that the work would actually happen. There is one problem, though, with his plan. And that is that he does not have near enough time, resources, or people to accomplish the rebuilding of the walls as he hopes. Nehemiah has to work, and he's run out of PTO. Nehemiah is on a fixed budget, and he certainly does not make enough money to independently fund a wall surrounding the entire city of Jerusalem. And he's also only one man. If he were to work alone, it would take him a lifetime to complete the construction of this project. And this is a moment where Nehemiah sees the issue and raises a solution right here in verse 11. It's subtle, but you can see exactly where his mind is headed when he says at the end, I was the cupbearer to the king. By this line, we see that he realizes the great advantage that he has due to his access to King Artaxerxes a privilege that not very many people had on a regular basis. Nehemiah plans to use this advantage for the fulfillment of God's will. However, he faces yet another issue. And that's the fact that he's dealing with a moody and egotistical king who could have him executed at the drop of a hat. How could he approach him with visible sadness when he clearly only wants happy and helpful people around him? And Nehemiah is painfully aware that his life is at risk as he approaches the king in his mourning. And for some reason, from the time of the report to the time Nehemiah approaches the king in chapter 2, four months pass. And perhaps this was just because it took him so long to gather up the courage to actually go to the king and let his feelings be known. And perhaps there's some other reason where he chose not to make contact with the king for that span. But regardless, we know that eventually Nehemiah does reveal his heart to the king in his king's court. So finally, after that four-month period has passed, Nehemiah is called upon to bring the wine to the king. Chapter 2 opens up with what would be the beginning of a lengthy exchange between the two. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. This is, a, uh, this is his moment to ask the question. And it's really hard to hear Artaxerxes' tone here in his questioning. Is he annoyed that Nehemiah has such an ha unhappy demeanor? Does he really care enough about him to actually be asking? And I'm not really sure what the answer to that is, but I'm going to assert the latter. He does seem to care. It does seem that he has some level of care by responding 
with an appeal to Nehemiah's emotional well-being rather than just asking for him to be removed or killed. Still, this is a tense moment for Nehemiah as he's not sure how the king may respond. He describes himself in this situation and he says in verse 2, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when my city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? His fear here is palpable. However, he knows the task is too great to shy away from as he stands right in front of the king. His city is laying far off in ashes. His culture is being torn apart by people in factions who refuse to work together in any capacity at all. His nation has been plundered by just about every nation around and is completely ill-prepared and unprotected. So he must speak. And this prompts the king to ask, what is it that you want? Rather than immediately listing his requests to the king, he pauses for what was probably no more than 10 seconds. And he goes back to the place where all of this started in the first place. Prayer. Nehemiah takes a quick moment, even as he's standing before the king, to throw out a quick prayer. And we don't get to see what this prayer actually was. All it tells us in the verse is, Then I prayed to the God of heaven. But it's important to stop and acknowledge that moment. If he had been asked a question that requires an immediate response, he does not have time to get down on his knees and say some ornate prayer full of flowery language. This could have been as simple as a, God, please help me out here. When we think about praying for a situation that we're struggling with, we often put an expectation on ourselves that God is not asking or expecting of us. We tend to think that if we don't have at least a few minutes to get down on our knees and pray on it, we should just wait for another time and do it then. We think that if we don't have time, or we're not in the right setting, to bow our heads and close our eyes, that the prayer, for some reason, won't go through. This is a case where Nehemiah had it right, where we so often get it wrong. We should be having these little five-second conversations with God all throughout our day, very often. How are we really going to pray without ceasing if we don't have this practice as a part of our daily prayer lives? Having a difficult conversation with your boss, would a prayer as you walk into his office not be helpful? Are you in a moment of conflict with your spouse? A quick prayer can drastically change how that conversation goes and give you a moment to reset your heart to the Lord before that conflict continues. Are you disciplining your child? Pray about it first. All of these moments are split-second things that we face regularly, but we miss the opportunity to ask God for the help that he'll give us. Ask for help regardless of where you are or who you're talking to. Don't be afraid to cry out to God quickly without the normal reverence that we would give during a prayer. God wants to hear from you in these bad times. Tell him when you need him and let him walk walk with you through these moments of daily struggle. And as Nehemiah concludes his quick moment of prayer, he gives Artaxerxes his first request in verse 5. And I answer the king, If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, 
Let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting right beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Nehemiah first asks if he would be allowed to travel back to Judah, specifically to Jerusalem. He lets the mission to rebuild his city be known to the king and to the queen. And I find it interesting here that the only question Artaxerxes asks is, How long are you going to be gone? He is most worried about when his trusted employee is going to be returning to his post. And thankfully, with God's providence, the king says, No problem, Nehemiah. Go ahead and go. So he sets a date for his departure. Now here, I want us to take a moment and place yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. You have just asked a question to the king that's a huge favor, and he's granted it to you. Would you choose to push your luck any further, or would you just be glad that he gave you your first request and go on your way? Personally, I'm not one to push my luck, and I probably would have went home, packed a bag, and left before he changed his mind, turned my phone off on the way out. Nehemiah, however, saw the bigger picture here. He knows that he cannot complete his task without some help. So he brings a list of needs to the king. And he asks him to provide what he needs to get the job done. In verse 7, it says, And I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct when I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates and for the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And... Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So now, imagine, after already being granted what was a very unlikely request, you say, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute, king. While we're at it, can you go ahead and grab your checkbook for me? Oh, and I'm going to go ahead and make a run to Home Depot. I'm going to pick out all of the best stone and tile and wood, and I'll just have them send you the invoice. Oh, and one more thing. I'm going to need your personal security detail to take me along the way to make sure I'm safe. Oh, and just while we're at it, uh, I I was thinking maybe I'll take your Mercedes, so if you just hand me the keys. (laughs) Most of us are afraid to ask our boss for the days off that we already have contracted to us. (laughs) But Nehemiah here was bold. He understood that the relationship of God to the king and his wealth and his resources, none of those things were truly owned by Artaxerxes. None of that money really belonged to him. God, like he is now, was fully in control of how any resources were allocated. And he saw it fit that Nehemiah go and rebuild those walls for Jerusalem. And so he moved the heart of the king to do exactly that. Nehemiah was just given so much more than he could have even expected. We are so worried when it comes to completing God's mission that we will not have what we need to actually get it done. God has called us. And that means that God will also provide a way for us to do that work for his kingdom. Everything belongs to God. 
All the wealth in the world is controlled by God, and it falls wherever he wills and wherever he purposes it. Ask God for the resources that you need to do the work for his kingdom. He may not provide exactly what you ask for, but he will provide exactly what you need in order to fulfill your vocation as one of his image bearers here on earth as you share the gospel with others. What God can provide is not limited to wealth, though. If you need knowledge, ask for it. If you need courage, ask for it. God will grant you your needs as you pursue him. And Nehemiah understood this fully. If you don't ask, don't expect to receive anything. You also play a role with this in your giving. When you give back what God has given you, you are funding his kingdom's work. God allows money to flow into our hands so that when a Nehemiah comes and he needs some help, we're able to provide it. Nehemiah has received his funds, he's received his supplies, and he sets off for Jerusalem to begin the task of rebuilding the wall. So when he arrives, he begins assessing the damage during the night. This is verse 13. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well in the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on to the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. And finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And this is the moment in the story where the rubber meets the road. He has now actually seen the damage of the walls in Jerusalem. He has seen that the city gates are completely destroyed and the city's sense of security is completely non-existent. And it's one thing to hear about a problem and know that something has to be done about, cor- about correcting the issue. And identifying the problem is a small part of the big picture. But maybe the damage was worse than he could have imagined. So he was feeling more discouraged than ever about what was already an awful situation. And he's at another crossroads here with the choice to follow through with his decision to rebuild or deem it as a task that is too great and just leave it on for the next person. And Nehemiah very easily could have just walked away. But he didn't. Even his doubters began to question whether or not he could do this or this could be accomplished at all, Nehemiah meets them with a hopeful response rooted in his faith for the Lord. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruin, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you're doing, they said? Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success when his servants start rebuilding. But as for you, you will have no share in Jerusalem or any claim 
or historic right to it. And Nehemiah's reply here is perfect. He points out the obvious that they're all able to see the destruction of the city gates right in front of them. He's concerned about the status of the city in the eyes of the rest of the world around them. He wants it to be a proud place where God is honored and the people are safe, rather than this laughing stock that it has been sitting there in smoldering ruin. And Nehemiah makes a point to give God his proper credit for the provision and for the blessing that he granted him along the way. This was also evidence that God was with Nehemiah, giving him what should have been some credibility with that doubting leadership, if their hearts really were for God. However, resistance was coming. And Pastor Harold will take some more time to talk about that next week. But the moment that I really want us to focus on is this section that boils down to two words. Let us. It's obvious that the rebuilding of an entire city, a wall that goes all the way around, is not a one-man job, but the burden could have very easily been left on his shoulders alone. Remember, Nehemiah has taken up this role of leadership, but he is still just a regular guy. It's going to take more than just him alone to restore Jerusalem to what it once was. Nehemiah identified this problem, and he organized people, and he set in this, pl- this plan of restoration into motion, and he owned his part in the renewal story, and he worked tirelessly to make this plan come to fruition. It's imperative for us to note that he, the leader, still chose to work alongside everyone else. This is just who Nehemiah is. However, everybody around him also had to be bought in to this mission of rebuilding the city walls as well. Everyone around him had to have an attitude that saw how they had strayed from the Lord. The people had to acknowledge their need to return to him. And they did just that. Their us project was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem so that they could be protected from another military invasion. Some were hesitant about it because they didn't want to interrupt what they interpreted to be God's plan for the future. But they missed the fact that his plan was happening right there in front of them through a faithful servant. It wasn't just one faithful servant, though. While Nehemiah was the catalyst that made this all go into motion, many people also took this opportunity to repent and get back onto mission with God. So this leaves a little bit of a question for us. We are not trying to build a wall around our city for protection. Today in our culture... It would be pretty strange for us to go around the border of Fort Worth and start building a wall all the way around. So what is our us project? The wall was theirs, but what is our us project? I want us to just take a look around the room this morning. The people in this room are your project. However, it does not stop there. The kids that you tuck into bed each night are your project. The co-workers who you will see at work tomorrow, those are your project. Today, as you drive home and you pass hundreds of cars that are filled with people that need to know Jesus desperately, and they need to be discipled, that is your project. We, as God's kingdom representatives on earth, have a divine vocation that we have to fulfill 
we must live out the Great Commission. You don't have to wonder in anxiety about what God wants from you. Jesus' parting words to his disciples were to go out and make disciples. We have to be making disciples or we're failing the mission that God left for us here on earth. Our job is to take a look at the church and work to reform what needs to be changed. Obviously, we're going to remain true to the gospel, but we should be examining everything else constantly. We should not land in a complacent mindset and leave the work of reform for the next generation of believers to sort out. The church is not perfect, and we have seen how problems can begin to fester and destroy credibility of Christianity in our culture. If we look back in the last 50 to 75 years in the American church, it's obvious that somewhere along the way, a spark of problems hit. Church leaders became lovers of themselves more than lovers of Christ. Believers revoked their individual responsibility to be ambassadors of the gospel and outsourced the mission of Jesus to others. Christian organizations began covering up the indiscretions of their leadership. And now, the worldwide spotlight is on the failures of the church. What began as just a little spark of problems began smoldering. And now, it's on fire. We have to be proactive as God's people to not only put that fire out, but to do our best to fireproof the church for the future. And Nehemiah did exactly this. He saw that the problem was there, and he was not content until he saw that solution too. There's a reason, there's no reason to ignore problems here in the church. They're inevitable. They're going to happen. But this is not just for the church staff. We all have a responsibility to God to look at problems head on and face them with Scripture as our guide. Our job is to love people as well. And we miss the mark on this point so, so often. And I know that the church can do better at loving the world around it. And Nehemiah loved people even though they had completely turned their backs on God. And his love was displayed by action to repair what was physically broken. Look for a chance to love others this week. And maybe look for a chance to love others that you wouldn't normally love. Our love for people cannot stop as we walk out these doors today. The love of Christ, through us, has the ability to radically change culture around us. God never expected Nehemiah to go at it alone either. And he doesn't expect us to do that either. The reason that we have focused on discipleship so much here at Cornerstone is just for that. We should not be going at it alone, and God never designed us to do that. We should be trying, we should be trying to develop spiritually, but we should never be trying to do that on our own. It's possible, but it's certainly not ideal. It's too discouraging to go at life alone. It's too discouraging to be in a spiritual walk alone. God created us to lean on one another as we grow in faith and love for one another. God gave us a community right here that will support each other as we struggle and as we celebrate our successes. We do not have to go at this alone. Join together with your community here. Acknowledge your role in the situation and in the solution and accept responsibility for the role that God wants you to play. 
Would you bow your heads as we reflect together on what God wants to speak to us? Nehemiah was so closely in tune with God's heart and will that he could efficiently identify the steps he needed to take next. The problem is, you can only be in tune with God's will if you have a relationship with him. God wants to direct you and give you this beautiful and intentional purpose. He wants your life to be an impactful extension of his mission here on earth. He wants to know you and he wants to walk alongside you. And He wants to walk alongside you while you're fulfilling a life serving for his glory. He wants you to accept his offer of eternal salvation. And he wants to forever call you his child. And if that's something you crave, if, you have a, if having a life that depends on his goodness and love is something that you know you need, we have wonderful deacons that are in the back who would love to pray with you and have that conversation about salvation. You don't need to feel pressured, but you should feel the burden of this importance. Choosing to walk in step with God is something that you'll never regret. And if this is something that you need, make your way to the back so you can talk through where God wants to take you. Now for those of you who know Christ and want to serve him with boldness and initiative of Nehemiah, I want to commend you. We should see godly examples of our fathers in the faith and be motivated and challenged to be more aligned with what God wants from us. I want us to pray like Nehemiah together for the next few minutes. First, can we acknowledge how good God has been to us? Thank him for his loving care and his hand of goodness in your life. Take a moment to notice what he's done and what he's doing for you and through you. The God of the universe knows you by name and he calls you his child and he loves you with a goodness that we'll never be able to understand. Thank him for this. Next, acknowledge your role in the brokenness of our circumstance. What part of the problem have you contributed to? Have you lacked consistency? Find someone to disciple you in accountability. Have you not engaged in commitment? Join the church. Take the next step to stand alongside the church body and say, these are the people that God has called me to live my life with. Acknowledge that God has a purpose for you. He's called you to a specific and purposeful will. He's in control. He is in command. He is sustaining and he's powerful. And he will guide you to our final acknowledgement. You can be a part of the solution. You are capable enough to look around and identify an issue when it's there and then own it. Nehemiah was just the guy who heard the report, and he could have easily deflected it off and blamed someone else. The this-is-not-my-problem attitude was nowhere with Nehemiah, and we ought to follow that example. When you see a problem in our church, it is your problem. We are one group of people united in a bond by Christ, and we can no longer function as completely isolated individuals. We should be concerned with love and care over the problems of our community. Make that problem yours and be a problem solver. 
instead of saying, I just wish they would reach out to me more. Be the one who is reaching out to others and foster that culture in our church body. Instead of saying, I wish we would have more Bible study groups, ask yourself, what am I doing to engage a community with my church family? Problems are inevitable, but we have to have the ability to solve them. Be self-aware enough to see a problem and work towards solution towards a solution that is good enough for the church body as a whole. We, for whatever reason, have a predisposition to wait for others to act before we are willing to step up. And this ranges from large things to small things. If you're feeling led to share the gospel with someone, go and do it. Don't wait to have a conversation with the church staff about why you're not equipped or what you should do. Jesus commanded us to share it, so say that five-second prayer like Nehemiah and God will provide you what you need in that moment. Even with something simple, as, as simple as moving chairs, if you see a need, meet the need. We are all in this Christian walk together. We are all in God's kingdom together. Own the mission of God. Be active. Ask for help. Share the gospel. And make disciples. Heavenly Father, we just love you so much. We know that you're good. We know that you love us. And we know that you care. Lord, just like Nehemiah, we need your help. Help us to be problem solvers. Help us to see the problems and not only identify them, but with your guiding, solve those problems for your kingdom. God, help us to share the gospel boldly with those around us. Regardless of if we're mocked, regardless of if we feel prepared, we know that you will prepare us and we know that your will is right, regardless of what the culture says around us. God, help us to pray for others. Help us to pray for our culture. Ask forgiveness for people that are not ourselves. We know that their hearts are in desperate need of you, just like ours are. Help us to love them enough to care and to care enough to ask for that forgiveness for them. That, and our hope is that one day they would repent and follow you as well. Help us to be bold this week and ask for what we need. Help us to be bold this week and serve you in any way that we see. We should not hesitate and help us to be quick to respond and not wait for others. God, we love you and we know that you have equipped us to do all of these things because it's what you commanded us to do. Help us to do those things faithfully this week. Help us to engage with each other this week. Help us to love each other and help us to complete our project and our mission for your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.